The work of God, the work of the grace of God is is truly amazing. Think about it. Through grace, God takes wretched, undeserving human beings that are totally enslaved to sin and through faith in Jesus Christ, saves them, redeems them and makes them into instruments of righteousness. He makes them trophies of his grace so that they bring glory to his name and become exemplary ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One historian noted that Anskar, uh, a French missionary to Scandinavia in the ninth century, uh, he noted the story about Anskar. When, when he was asked by the unbelievers there if he could perform miracles, he replied, and I quote, if God were indeed to grant me that power, they grant that power to me, I would only ask that I might exhibit the miracle of a holy life. The miracle of a holy life. The miracle of a transformed life is a miracle that can easily be overlooked. But it is nonetheless a clear testimony to the power of God, to the power of God to change lives. And it is a clear testimony to those who are careful enough observers to notice. This transformed life not only brings glory to God, but is one of your greatest assets in in witnessing to the unbelieving world around you. As we prepare to see the amazing work of the grace of God in Titus 2, I want to set before you a passage that serves as an appropriate preface and introduction to the discussion about the power of God to transform our lives. And this is a passage in Romans 6. So I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to Romans 6, um, and I'll be looking at verses, uh, reading verses 1 to 9. And, and I want you just to, to think about this in, in the context of God's transformational power, which is at work in the lives of those he saves. Romans 6, beginning at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, 
but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. In Romans 6, the apostle Paul calls believers to to think of themselves in terms as being slaves of righteousness and to aim at wholehearted obedience to the word of God. You see, this isn't just like we talked about in Titus. This isn't an external obedience that's that's forced upon you externally. That's how many uh, sometimes how righteousness is presented or godliness is presented. There's this list of of things that you must do that are foisted upon you externally. But no, that what we're talking about is an internal obedience, a wholehearted obedience to God's word. Now turn to, to Titus, Titus 2. How does this relate to Titus? Well, Titus gives us some specifics of which beforehand, the, the, in, in, in Romans, the apostle just spoke about it in a, in a general sense, that transformation in a general sense. Titus gets into the nuts and bolts and everyday intricacies of our lives. It, it's how we live out that righteousness and godliness as older men, as younger men, as older women, as younger women, and as slaves. So that kind of gets into the, the nuts and bolts. Titus 2 provides us these specific characteristics of what sanctification looks like in the, in the lives of Christian men, women, and slaves. And, and after providing these specifics, Paul, Paul moves away from the specifics for a moment to help us see the reason why, why God commands such obedience, such, um, such of the things that he has commanded in Titus 2. And it provides us a wonderful glimpse at the amazing work of God's grace in our lives. So please read with me, if you will, Titus 2. And I'm going to read the verses uh, 1 to 14. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love and perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, 
instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus 2, verses 11 to 14, shows us the amazing grace of God that works in our lives to save us, not only save us from the punishment of sin, but also to instruct us and to motivate us to practical holiness so that we would be thoroughly the people of God and that we would be zealous to pursue good works. And we're going to dig into the details of the amazing works of the grace of God. What's the first amazing work of the grace of God that, that Titus highlights? It's right there in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The grace of God saves us. Now it saves us. So just to set a little bit of the context, we, we read through one uh, verses 1 to 15. But verses 11 to 14 are, are really central to the whole book of Titus. In fact, uh, one commentator uh, calls these verses the theological core of the entire letter. The theological core of the entire letter. And verses 11 to 14 provide us with the foundation for the instructions that, that Paul provided in verses 1 to 10. The, the, verses 11 to, to 14 provide us with the, the crowning reasons for the instructions found in verses 1 to 10. And we know this. We know that that um, that these verses eleven to fourteen are are related to verses one to ten because of what happens very at the very front, uh, very first part of the verse with that conjunction for. It's a coordinating conjunction for. And when you see for or therefore, you always ask why is it therefore? It's connecting what's what Paul is about to say with what he has just said. And it's not just connected to what he said about slaves, but it's connected to what he said about slaves about younger and older women and younger and older men. It, it's, it's pointing us to the, to the reason why uh, God calls us to live in such ways. And, and, and there is such a life-changing event, something magnanimous, something truly amazing, something truly life-changing that the grace of God does at the very foremost that, that Paul highlights. And what is this? And this life-changing events is the appearance of the grace of God, which saves us. The appearance of the grace of God. Now, the verb appeared is, is actually emphasized in the Greek text. It actually is moved forward in the sentence. Greek can do that. Um, the only way that English works that way is if you listen to Yoda talk on Star Wars. He kind of follows that format. But the point is, in Greek, you move some some verbs forward in order to to emphasize it, in order to to bring attention to it, and and the verb has appeared is emphasized in in order to highlight it, as one commentator explains, as the revolutionary and transforming nature of the appearing. It it is such a life changing event. Now, we hear some of these things. You've read the text. We've read it many times. And sometimes it, it, can, uh, it can just become like a 
so familiar that it just kind of flows into one ear and, and out the other. So my goal this morning is to really help you to see how this appearing of the grace of God is, is such an important event that it changed our very lives. It's the reason that you're here this morning. It's the reason that you have any hope of eternal life. This verb points us to a specific one-time appearance. The grace of God has appeared. And, and the word has appeared is a word that, that can actually refer to the sun at sunrise, the sun appearing. Or it can appear on a, uh, it's used to, to speak about the appearance of the stars on a, on a clear night. But the word is also used metaphorically. And, and it's actually related to our English word epiphany. If you have an epiphany, you have something that appears in your head, some thought, right? It's that same word. So in Titus 2.11, he's using the word, Paul is using the word, the grace of God has appeared in a metaphorical, spin, a metaphorical sense to speak not of the appearing of the sun or the stars, but to, to speak of the appearance of God's grace, and, and, and God's grace is, in this term, uh, grace, it's a common word that's used in the Bible. But, but it's always good to remind ourselves of, of what words mean. As soon as we can think we know what it means, and, and then we go to try to, to explain it to somebody, you find you have difficulty doing that. But, but grace um, is, in this context, means, as, as Vine's Expository Dictionary explains, that the friendly disposition from which the kindly act proceeds, graciousness, loving kindness, goodwill, especially with reverence to the divine favor or grace. In this respect, there is stress on its freeness and universality, its spontaneous character, as in the case of God's redemptive mercy, the pleasure or joy he designs for the recipient, and the friendly disposition from the kindly act that proceeds graciousness, loving kindness, goodwill. And God does this freely and he does it out of his own kindness and he does it for our joy, our pleasure, our good. Grace is contrasted with debt or what is owed. For example, Romans 4 verses 4 to 5 uh, give us this contrast. He says there, Paul says, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due? So what is he saying? If, if you work for something, then you do that. You understand that. Uh, for those of you that, that work for an employer or even the self-employed, you, you work for your customer. You do something and, and in, in return, they owe you something. Right? So the payment they give you is not a gift. It's, it's what was owed you. You worked for it. You earned it. And they, they give that to you. But Romans 4, 5 says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. That describes the grace of God and how freely it's given. Grace, grace cannot be mixed with anything you earn, lest it not be grace anymore. Romans 4, 16 uh, draws us to a head and he says, for this reason, it is salvation. It's referring to salvation. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. That is, you're saved by faith and that not of yourselves. Even that's a gift. 
So you're saved by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. If 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 uh, salvation was at all anything you contributed to, it would no longer be by grace. That's that's what Paul is saying, right? So you can't mix grace and works. It simply ceases to be grace when you put any kind of works with it, right? You just can't be mixed in in any percentage, lest it be no longer grace. So that's that's this amazing grace that has appeared that, that Paul is talking about. And this is the grace of God. God is the origin of this grace. Right? We didn't wake up one day and say, gee, I wish God would express some grace. And then we prayed and, and then God responded to that. That's nonsense. You know that. Right? God is the initiator. He is the planner. In fact, he planned this before the foundation of the world. He planned to demonstrate his grace and think about the thousands of years that were building up to this moment when his grace would appear he hinted at it he prophesied of it he even forgave people in light of that so all the old testament saints were saved in light of the grace of god that would yet appear they looked forward to the messiah who who had not come yet but think about the thousands of years that god prepared human history for this appearing of the grace of god and, and what is Paul referring to when he tells us the grace of God has appeared? You know that he, he, he is referring to Jesus Christ. So in, in one lump term, he, he is he is uh, putting together the life, the death, the resurrection uh, of Jesus Christ into one historical event which manifests the grace of God. John Kitchen explains it this way. He says, in using the term, the grace of God has appeared, Paul views the whole of Jesus' incarnation and redemptive work as one event. He just kind of sums it up. All of that, Jesus' incarnation, his life and his death and his resurrection is all viewed as the grace of God having appeared. And he, and he adds this, uh, John Kitchen adds this, it is viewed from the vantage point of the benefit of man. Thus, the emphasis upon the grace of God that has appeared, bringing salvation. And, and it's interesting, this word appeared is actually used in reference to Christ in the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 78 and 79, there it's the prophecy of, of Zacharias. There, Zacharias uses similar terminology in prophesying of Jesus' life and ministry. He says there, and I quote, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. And there it's there. It's uh, kind of characterizing. It's impersonating. It's it's, it's using language um, uh, to talk about sunrise, referring to Christ, with which the sunrise on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So it's that that appearing, it, it, it's the appearing of Christ, the appearing of the sunrise from on high. And this this event is life changing because it brings salvation to all men. It's not as if God just put himself on display and then left us unchanged. God put himself on display in order to save us and to redeem us. Now, it's interesting that that in the reading of, of Titus, if you look at Titus 11, it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. There's actually the word, the word bringing actually isn't in the Greek text there. 
There's no explicit verb in the Greek text. It simply reads this way. For the grace of God has appeared salvation to all men. It's as if Paul, Paul could hardly contain himself in thinking about salvation and rushes to emphasize the starting place for the work of, of the grace of God, this appearance of the grace of God in the life of the child of God. Now, it's, it's, um, the, the, the verb is, is uh, um, it's implicit, so it's right to put it in the translation, but I just want to highlight how, how excited the Apostle Paul is. You think the, the Apostle Paul knew the gospel well? At this stage of his life, he knew it exceedingly well. And yet he hasn't allowed that, the, the, that knowledge to become like old hat. He hasn't allowed that to become just oh-hum. This is still exciting to him as he thinks about the grace of God appearing. Now, when we talk about salvation, it's a term we use frequently. But again, I, I like to break it down to help us understand. In, in a general sense, salvation denotes a deliverance or preservation from danger. In this context, Paul uses salvation to refer to the spiritual and eternal deliverance granted immediately by God to those who accept his conditions of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in whom alone it is to be obtained. MacArthur and Mayhew's um, systematic theology, biblical doctrine, explains salvation as the divine act of delivering a believer from the power and curse of sin and then restoring that individual to the fellowship with God for which humans were originally intended. Think about that definition. Salvation is a divine act of delivering a believer from the power and curse of sin, and then restoring that individual to the fellowship with God for which humans were originally intended. So salvation is not just about the avoidance of hell, the avoidance of eternal punishment. It is very much connected with um, how we live now and restoring us to fellowship with God. One, another uh, dictionary, another uh, one theological dictionary explains that salvation entails God's deliverance of humans from the power and effects of sin and, and the fall through the work of Jesus Christ so that, the, so that the creation in general and humans in particular can enjoy the fullness of life intended for what God has made. Both those definitions point us to the fact that God is going to, through salvation, restore what was lost at the fall. That's what he's going to restore. Broadly speaking, the New Testament uses the term salvation in ways which include concepts of justification, sanctification, and glorification. So sometimes you have to pay attention, you have to pay attention to the context, but sometimes the word salvation is used in, in a lump sum, like here, or at other times it's used to talk about justification. Other times it's used about sanctification or to refer to sanctification. Other times it's used to talk about glorification. All those are encompassed in that term salvation. Now, this, why, why is salvation such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal? Why is salvation highlighted by Paul as the first work of the grace of God in, in this context of Titus? It, it, why, why does he say that, that this motivates us to do what was in verses 1 to 11? Well, first, because the salvation is the starting place for the child of God. It's the starting place. There is no true discipleship, no true sanctification, no true holiness, no true godliness without conversion. Oh, a per person can mimic a certain amount of these things in the same way that that a, a plastic apple can really look like the real thing. And, and nowadays, 
the, the you know those those plastic apples are pretty realistic, right? So it's quite hard to to tell just by looking at it. So certainly there are people who can mimic these things, but true life transformation uh, doesn't can't happen without being born again. As Jesus said, you must be born again. In John three three. Truly I say to you, truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of, of God. That's, that's Jesus' words. So you must be born again spiritually of God's spirit if you are going to see his power at work in your life and to be transformed. Right? The Apostle Paul explains the same concept in different terms in Romans 8. I'll read Romans 8 verses 5 to 8. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So you see, someone who hasn't been born again is still in the flesh. So they can come to church, they can read the Bible, they can they can kind of puppet their way through the various activities of the Christian disciplines. But there's no life within to really transform them, and they know that. So everything is just merely external. Right? They're hoping to to earn their own uh, salvation, which is impossible since it is by grace, as I explained earlier. So salvation is that starting place that then launches us into, into growth and sanctification and into a true fellowship with God. But there's a second reason why Paul mentions salvation first in highlighting the work of the grace of God, and it is to emphasize that God's grace rescues people from the wrath to come. Now, I'll argue it does more than that, but we should not over the, overlook the fact that it does do that. We need to remember that God is the creator and ruler of all. I know our world contests that even even uh, many uh, Christian churches or so-called Christian churches, even some evangelical churches, don't hold to the fact that God created the world in six literal days like Genesis tells us. But it's the height of arrogance to think that you know better than the Scriptures. God created everything there is and, and thus has a right to tell us how to live as His creator. As, as his creation. So God is the creator and ruler of all. God is holy, righteous, and perfect. There is no flaw. There's no darkness in him. It, it, there can be no darkness in him. Right? He cannot fellowship with darkness. And so God justly demands as our holy creator that we be perfectly holy. He created us to have fellowship with him. And yet, as human beings, we have not listened to God. We have rebelled against God. Each one of us, every one of us, from Adam and Eve, and yes, they are real historical human beings that God created that, that rebelled against God and launched creation as, as, as the federal head of the, of the human race. Adam launched us into a life of rebellion so that no one can, can claim any kind of holiness or righteousness on their own. Or they can claim it, but it's, there's no credibility to that claim. Romans 3 tells us that, that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There's not even one. Notice that word useless. Okay? Useless. 
Right? Without Christ, our lives are useless. Right? Useless. Romans 3.23 adds to this by saying that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've missed the target that God launched us on, not of any fault of God, but of fault of our own. It's our own rebellion. Our own rebellion has earned us God's just punishment, which is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Not only physical death, but spiritual death, which separates us from, from the life of God, from fellowship with God. But that spiritual death also ensures that we uh, face an eternity of punishment of sin. And as I've mentioned before, some recoil from that teaching, and it's not a teaching that we, that we like, but it's a teaching that the, that the Scriptures teach nonetheless. If someone is without Christ, he, he, their punishment extends into eternity. And someone might say, well, that doesn't seem hardly fair that if they sin, even if they sinned every day for 70 years, um, you know, that doesn't seem hardly fair that God would punish them for eternity. But when we reason like that, we underestimate our offense against God. We underestimate the holiness of God. And we also assume that the person stops sinning once they die physically. They don't. If people don't repent of their sins while they're breathing and living here on earth, they, there's no second chance. The whole idea of purgatory is something made up right, by men. It is not in the scriptures. So people don't stop sinning. And so for these reasons and others we can explain, it's just for God to punish sinners eternally. But as an act of grace and mercy, God sent us his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place so we might be saved. You know, if, if God hadn't sent Jesus Christ, he would still be just. He would still be righteous. He could, he could have condemned us all to hell and he'd still be good and he would still be righteous. He, it, he can never deny his characteristics of goodness and justness and doing what is right. So it was a total act of grace and mercy. And God doesn't, you know, God created us for fellowship, but God doesn't need our fellowship. So sometimes you hear that in, in evangelical circles, that, that God needs our, our companionship. God doesn't need our companionship. He wants it. He desires it. And he pours out his grace upon us to have it. But that's for our benefit. He doesn't benefit. He doesn't benefit. He wants it for our benefit. So as a total act of grace and mercy, God sent us the Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place so we might be saved. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 makes this clear. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Notice there that Paul puts as much emphasis on on the life death uh, life and death uh, and, and the resurrection as he does any other part of the, the gospel sometimes in proclaiming the, the the fact that Christ died for us died for our sins we forget to mention that he was also raised right that that part about being raised is just as important it ensures the penalty for our sins has really fully been paid uh, John 3.16 adds to this and says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God poured out his love through his Son, Jesus Christ, so he could save us. 
again, going back to Romans, Romans 3.23, which I already read, for all of sin to fall short of the glory of God, continues this way in verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, you see, God God can't simply say abracadabra or, or just get a proverbial spiritual rug and take your sins and put them under it. Right? So some people have asked that question. Why, God, why, why can't God just forgive sin? And the reason is because he's righteous and he's holy. Right? And so there has to be a punishment for sin, and he sent his son to take that punishment. And so now, as a result of that, God is now calling all people everywhere to repent, to repent of sins, and to trust in Jesus Christ. Acts 17, 30 and 31 make this clear. There Paul says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising them from the dead. God is warning you. There's a judgment day coming. And because that judgment day is coming, he's saying, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that you would be saved. Understand Jesus' words, these sobering words from John eight twenty four. Therefore, I said to you, that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And he was talking to the Pharisees who thought they knew God. Unless you believe that, that Jesus is the I am, you will die in your sins. And if you die in your sins, you will suffer the eternal consequences of your sins. You will have no advocate on high. But the good news is you're here and breathing or you're listening to the sermon later Realize that if, if you're listening to this, there's still opportunity for you to believe. And if you've already believed, take stock of what the Lord has done. Right? The Lord has saved you, not by any works of your own, but by belief. As Acts 31 says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's a promise. Now, Romans 10 verses 9 to 13 emphasize this fact. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you are, are here and have not believed in Christ, right? think about what the Lord has done, what He is urging you. He's actually pleading with you to believe in Him, to call upon the name of the Lord. Right? Give up your own righteousness. Give up your foolishness that, that you think that, that you, can, you can make it well on your own. Even atheists know that God exists. So repent of, of the thinking that, that God doesn't exist. You know God exists. 
And you need to believe in him. You need to flee to Jesus Christ as God, the son of God who died and rose again on your behalf and believe in him. Realize that all this is foolishness. All that I've said is just foolishness from man's perspective. It's a foolish message. Really? You just believe that's all? Oh, it's all foolishness. But God understands how we think. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 to 25. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. And you realize that? The people that think they're wise right now and are mocking God, denying God, rejecting the gospel. Right? There's coming a day when God is going to destroy their wisdom. He already has, but it, it's the day in which it, that, that destruction will be manifest. That they will see the bankruptcy of their philosophy, the bankruptcy of their self-righteous life, the bankruptcy of trusting in riches or power. He will set aside that wisdom. He will destroy it. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God has has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So realize this. If you're here today and you believe the gospel, it is only because God opened your eyes, wiped away your foolishness and helped you to see his wisdom. Because otherwise you would have rejected it. And if you don't know where you stand with God today, if you're not sure whether you are saved or not, if you were to die today, whether or not you would be saved, believe God's word. Stop doubting. Stop putting trust in your own philosophy, in your own ability to reason about life. Stop putting trust in mere man. Believe God's word. Believe the gospel so that you can be saved. And I add to that, don't procrastinate lest you become a victim of the devil. Jesus warns about this in, in the, his parable of the sower, Matthew 13. He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. And there are other people who, who listen to the word of God and, and really don't take it to heart. Jesus continues there. He says, the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word of God and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, um, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So this is the person that associates with Christian, makes some kind of profession of faith, but has no real life. He, he's not born again. And then there's the one on whom the seed was sown among 
the thorns. This is the man who hears the word of God and the worry of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So there's all these things in life that, that, that get in the way of producing fruit. And these are ways where Jesus talks about um, those who are unfruitful, those who, who don't bear any fruit at all. And yet, the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word of God and understands it. So think about your life. You heard the word of God at some time. You heard the gospel at some time. And the fact that you believed shows that your life was good soil. Who made you the good soil? God's grace. You know, God was working in your life even before he saved you, preparing your heart to receive his word so that your life would be good soil, not rocky soil, not thorny soil. To produce good fruit. If you believe, you will be saved. Those are not my words. It's God's words. If he fails to keep that, he's not God. But of course he won't. He's always faithful. So there's there's one more part, one more amazing part of the work of the grace of God in bringing salvation that I want to highlight from Titus 2.11, and that's this. It's a salvation to all men. It's a salvation to all men. Now, now some, in interpreting the phrase to all men, completely ignore the, the, the context of Titus. You know, in, in Bible study, the, 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 key, the, the, the key principle uh, to keep going back to, I keep reminding you about is pay attention to the context. Pay attention to the context. And so when people come away from Titus and say, look, God's bringing, God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And, and they, they, they say that that means that, um, Paul, that God's going to save everyone. Um, they ignore the context of Titus. And, and this is a form of, of universalism. Universalism is the belief that God will save all people regardless of what they believe. As one dictionary explains, universalists of this type believe that ultimately all humans are somehow in union with Christ and that in the fullness of time they will gain release from the penalty of sin and, and be restored to God. Um, do you know the Catholic Church is a universalist? Oh, not in their doctrine, but in some of the practices that they're coming about. The, the Pope is working to bring about union with with different religions. They're building a, a, a big like um, center where the, the Muslim and, and the, the Christian and the Baha'i faith can come together and worship all together. But you see that the Pope does this real thinking that the Muslims will come to Christianity. And of course, the Muslims are probably doing it thinking the Christians will be converted to Islam. So it's all done uh, with somewhat uh, sleight of hand because these faiths, if you really understand their doctrines, are in contradiction to one another. They cannot all be true. And all roads do not lead to God. As uh, Jesus said, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Christ is the only way to the Father. So when I say that they completely ignore the context, what what context am I referring to? A few minutes, if you look for a minute, just at verses 15 and 16, in, in talking about those who reject sound doctrine, um, Paul says this, he says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. So unless someone repents of their sins and believes in Christ, 
They do not know God. They're detestable, they're disobedient, and they're worthless for any good deed. And that can only describe an unbeliever. And as long as they reject the gospel, they continue in unbelief. And as I said already, once a person dies, it's not as if they get some kind of second chance and reincarnation. That's not taught in the Bible at all. And, and purgatory is not taught in the scripture at all. So what you do now, the, what the decision you, you make regarding Christ now matters for eternity. So not only do the do, do people who who believe in your universalism from passages like Titus 2.11, ignore the context of Titus. They also ignore, ignore a lot of other texts and scriptures. For example, Jesus' words in John 8.24, Jesus said, unless, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And if you die in your sins, you have to face judgment for those sins. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 tell us, and inasmuch as it is an appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Right? So, it's, so there it's referring to that second appearing of Christ yet to come. But in, in, in pointing to that, uh, the author of Hebrews tells us that, that men die once and after this comes judgment. So again, what you the decision you make here matters about Christ matters for eternity. Think about Jesus' words in Matthew thirteen, uh, forty nine, where he says, "So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be a weeping and gnashing of teeth." Jesus did not enjoy teaching about hell, but he taught about hell more than he taught about heaven to warn people so that they would flee from the wrath to come and to flee into the ark of safety who is Christ our Lord. So if, if all men, and bringing salvation to all men, if that, if that isn't teaching uh, universalism, that, that God will save each and every individual, what is it teaching? Well, the first thing we need to understand is, is that the use of men here is a generic reference to humanity. Um, Second, we do well remember that the Samaritans who believed in Jesus declared him to be the savior of the world. They declared him the savior of the world. Now, why, why is it significant that the Samaritans would declare Jesus the savior of the world? Because they were Samaritans. Remember, the Samaritans were half-breeds. They, they uh, were intermingled. They were part Jewish. They were syncretistic in their worship. They kind of brought in other things. And that, that came from the, from the Assyrians that came into that area. Uh, the Babylonians resettled people. So, so there's the Samaritans, and they were at odds with the Jews. Right? Salvation is of the Jews, which indeed Christ was Jewish, and came, salvation came through the Jewish nation. But it's, the reason that it's important is because they weren't Jews. They were recognizing that Jesus, that the true Jew, the true Israel, was not just there to save Israel, but he was there to save the world. And they recognize that. Their words are profound. Jesus is truly the Savior of the world. And, and this is the thinking behind such famous passages, John 3.16. Listen, in context, uh, beginning in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the servant, serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. So in a famous passage talking about how God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to die for the world, he's saying you have to believe. Those who don't believe are going to face judgment. Those who believe escape judgment and have eternal life. So in that same passage, we see that that God is saving the world, not in the sense of every individual, but in terms of those who believe from from all the various nations of the earth. And and the, the fact that Jesus brings salvation to all men is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. I'll only quote, I'll only quote uh, one passage for you, but there are many of these passages in the Old Testament that the Jews seem to totally overlook. Isaiah 45.22, uh, in Isaiah 45.22, we're, we're told this, Jesus, uh, this is God, right? Turn to me, turn to me. It's God speaking, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. He's pleading, even the Old Testament. You know, sometimes we think of the Old Testament God as this, as uh, judgmental um, and just maybe short-tempered and uh, a bit of a mysterious character who uh, is not very nice. And so under that guise, that's not an accurate view, by the way, but under that guise, um, sometimes Christians flee to Christ to, to be like their, their safety and shield. But you know, if it wasn't for the kindness of God, the Father, it would not be Christ. If it were not for the kindness of God, pleading with the nations, that, that they would come to him for salvation, none of us would be saved. Christ would not come. Jesus said everything that he said and did comes from the Father. Okay? Jesus perfectly emulates the character of the Father. He, he exposits. It's the word exposing. Like I exposit a text. Jesus exposits the Father to us. So there's nothing about Jesus that you could look at Jesus' life and say the Father isn't also like that. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. They're united their characters, characteristics are identical. Jesus brings, the, the fact that Jesus brings salvation is not only fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, but it's also fulfillment of some New Testament prophecy. I want to, I want to turn to the book of Revelation for a moment. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 to 10, we read this. And when he had taken the book, this is speaking of Jesus, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell, fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, listen to this, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God, listen, and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. You see that God is rescuing people from from all around the globe, right? You have brothers and sisters in Christ who, who have gone before you that you have not met, but you have brothers and sisters in Christ who are alive today in other places of the world who you have not met, right? But you will meet in heaven. Um, the Apostle John continues in his record of, of this glorious truth in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 10. Revelation 7, verses 9 to 10. He says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every tribe and all 
So every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Heaven will be glorious primarily because God's there. But it's also going to be glorious because you're going to see the, the, all the trophies of grace that are there from every tribe and tongue and nation. And thus, when Paul says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, he means that God is in the process of bringing salvation uh, to people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And he uses us as ambassadors of Christ to do that. Sometimes he brings those nations to us so they live around us. At other times, we send missionaries to those countries that, that, those, that those nations would come to know God. The fact that God wants to save people from, from every nation it is, uh, really flows from the fact that, that God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't show partiality. And this is in, in Acts 10.34 where Peter says that I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation... The man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Right? And that fearing him draws us to him for salvation. That was at the, at the salvation of Cornelius. And God brings this salvation to all men as a work of his grace. I just want you to look a, a little bit ahead in Titus 3. Look at Titus 3 verses 4 and 5. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared... He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy and by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, God's grace is amazing. His, his grace works in amazing ways because he takes us who... We're not heirs. He takes us who were who were dead in our trespasses and sins, makes us alive in Christ, and makes us heirs. He makes us heirs, co-heirs with Christ. I think about that truth. Co-heirs with Christ. So you know, Scripture talks about us being slaves of righteousness and slaves of God in that. But he, that's not the only analogy it gives us. It talks about us as as heirs, as co-heirs with Christ. That, that's a wonderful truth that we need to refresh in our minds and not allow that to, to be, uh, become dull and, and like uh, old hat and, and um, something that we don't rejoice in. We need to keep rejoicing in that. And as stupendous and wonderful as being saved from the wrath of God is, God's plan for us is is deeper and more profound than just saving us from the eternal punishment of our sins. That's just the starting place. So the grace of God does indeed save us from wrath, as we discussed at length today, but it does much more than that. The grace of God isn't just a blessing in the future that you can, you can bank on for the future. It's a blessing right now and is working right now in us. It is actively and amazingly working in the lives of those it saves. How, you ask? By instructing us and by motivating us. And we will look at those, um, those works of the grace of God next week. Now let's pray together. Our Lord, our God, as we reflect upon the wonder of salvation, 
the wonder of the grace of God in bringing salvation to all nations, all tribes, all tongues. Lord, we, we just want to um, give you the praise that you are truly worthy of. Lord, allow these truths, which most in this room have heard many, many times, but allow these truths, Lord, to be refreshed, rekindled, Lord, in our minds and in our souls, that we would just rejoice in you, Lord. These truths alone, if there were nothing else, these truths alone should cause us to rejoice every day of our lives, even when, when there are just horrible things that, that on a human level happen to us, knowing that our eternal security, that our eternal salvation is secure in you. Oh God, we rejoice in, in your grace and your mercy, which you initiated and poured out upon us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, help us. Help us to be those ambassadors, to be credible ambassadors, and to live for the glory of Christ our Lord. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.